Riot Out Loud, a podcast by Chasing the Rainbows, with your host, Bernice Quisenberry. This week's podcast episode is with Dr. Serena Wu, maternal and fetal medicine doctor, um, specialist who also experienced her own baby loss. And we just appreciate her being willing to come on here and to do our Ask a Maternal Fetal Medicine Doctor segment for all of our survivors out there to hear. So welcome, Serena. Thank you for coming back. Thank you so much for having me, Bernice. It's, it's a pleasure and an honor, as well as a privilege to be here on your podcast. Um, I am super excited about today's podcast because I think um, not only do we want to answer any survivor's questions, but also have a discussion about topics that uh, you may have questions about, you know, whether that is, you know, diabetes and pregnancy or hypertension and pregnancy, you will be seeing most likely a maternal fetal medicine specialist. Um, So this today's podcast, I'm excited to open that up to show you what some of the things that we can and we will talk on your podcast, um, just as an example. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you sharing that, Serena, because it is so important just to go through different topics, different things that happen to us survivors, you know, during the whole entire process and to have that safe space that we can go to and someone to turn to that's not in a you know, threatening environment because it was really hard for me, for example, to return to my doctor's office after we went through our loss and to see my physicians and things like that. So just to have a place where they can go and they can ask questions, you know, from an from another expert is just always a great for me was always great because I always felt like I couldn't get enough ears or eyes on Brooke's chart and on what happened during our birth story. So right. Thank you. Right. Yeah. No, exactly. And, and exactly to your point, to be able to do that in a safe place. Yeah, absolutely. But I just want to real quick do the disclaimer here. Um, We're not trying to give out medical advice, medically treating any person, diagnosing any person, providing second opinions, virtual consults all throughout our entire podcast. Um, For medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis, please consult your primary care physician or obstetrician. And like Serena and I were saying, this segment is just to give some peace for our listeners who are struggling with some questions, you know, that happened during the whirlwind of events you know, when we went through our traumatic losses of our babies. And we just want to be able to keep and open the dialogue um, without feeling judged or silenced around our losses. So our intention is solely to help survivors process their traumatic loss. Um, So any requests that you may have on different topics like Serena mentioned or um, anything, you know, around your loss, please write in at criedoutloudpodcast.com because we not want, not only want to address questions that survivors have around their own loss, but we also want to make sure that we're addressing, you know, topics and discussions that come up too and that others are probably feeling and probably want some answers too. Right. I mean, so... I mean, I there there are, what makes a pregnancy high risk isn't just only the pregnancy itself, which could be uh, your cervix was considered too weak um, by your doctor, and you needed a a stitch to close it up. Um, if you had um, twins, for example, that or triplets, that makes your pregnancy high risk. If there's something going on with the baby, so it's not just 
maternal conditions that can make your pregnancy high risk. It, your pregnancy can be high risk for a whole bunch of other things that you don't realize until you're in the middle of it and something's going on. Yeah. Until you're living it. You're exactly right. Yeah, Serena. Absolutely. And I think after losing Brooke and thinking about, you know, trying to get pregnant again or, you know, what that kind of looked like, I felt like after our loss, we got a lot of unsolicited advice and then some solicited advice too from like friends, colleagues, loved ones, um, you know, that were coming at us at all different angles about, you know, well, you should ask for this or you need to do this or, um, you know, that you should handle this differently in pregnancy. And it was like, whoa, you know, like pump the brakes a little bit. It's a little overwhelming because, you know, we're still trying to process our loss on top of considering having another baby and they're two separate babies. So, you know, we're still grieving one and then considering going into another, you know, pregnancy where it ended in the worst case scenario possible previous. Right. So. Right. I'm sure that everybody was helping or thinking they're helping by giving yeah. you advice on what to do next. Um, I'm sure also that you, one or parents go to different um, like doctors or providers just to say, what would you do next? What should we yeah. do? And you might get a lot of right advice. And depending on the advice, it might be, might not be the most up-to-date um, or maybe something that was done five years ago, but isn't necessarily done currently. Right. And I think it's really important to have those open discussions and to know, you know, the difference, especially um, like things that you should talk to your maternal fetal medicine doctor about. Because what's interesting is, you know, not having or needing a maternal fetal medicine doctor before it was like, you know, now needing one with my age and, and, you know, all the things. And then, you know, with Brooke and then after Brooke and the complications with pregnancy, you know, I didn't know how to go about or what I should be asking or what I should be suggesting or, or how do you even open that dialogue? It's because, you know, you turn to your doctor and you just expect them to know, and you just kind of go with it until, a tragedy happens and then it's like, okay, now I need to advocate or I need to talk more effectively with my doctor or understand things a little better, I think. Right, right. So I think that's a perfect uh, segue into this article um, that the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine um, put out and it has been revised multiple times and the latest revision was uh, December of 2022. Um, and the title of that um, article is 18 things physicians and patients should question. So 18 things um, that doctors or your, you know, whether it's your family medicine doctor or, or your internist or your OBGYN, even your MFM um, that may, um, that may be recommended for the next pregnancy. Yeah. depending on what occurred in, in your previous pregnancy, you know, if, if you had a complication, a maternal complication or multiple complications, um, these are uh, things that they recommended that the physician and the patient should question together, which I think is perfect because I think that dialogue and that partnership um, with your doctor as you move forward with the next pregnancy is so important. Um, you know, it 
really is. And yeah, because you do, you need that partnership because you're trusting your life. You're trusting your baby's life with your doctor and not that they're God, they have any control over situations, but just saying that, you know, I want you to deliver my baby. And that means so much coming from a baby loss survivor who just went through, you know, the worst case scenario. So it's like, you know, when you pick your doctor, it's just, it's like a beautiful union between two people. And I mean, they're going to be in the delivery room with you. They're going to see your baby for the first time with you. Like they're going to get to experience all those first with you. And it's like, okay, like you just have to feel like you can have those trusted conversations and honest conversations with them because they're not going to know if something might come up or something's going wrong unless you tell them and you can feel comfortable doing so. Um, so I love having this open dialogue and, and feeling like, you know, you have this communication and, and things like that going back and forth. So, right, right, right. yeah. So let's dive into the first one. I'm going to actually let you take it away, Serena. Yeah. Yeah. So the first, the first one that they, uh, suggest is to not do an inherited thrombophilia evaluation for those women who've had histories of pregnancy loss, uh, babies that were growth restricted, um, patients whose pregnancies were complicated by preeclampsia and by placental abruption. And I know that, and this is why you need, you know, and I know, um, Bernice will, I'll, We'll have this article for anybody who wants a copy of it. We'll we'll be happy to share it with you, because yeah, w there are a lot of big medical words here or <laughs> medical yes. terms that you're like what and um, but to break it down, um, so this is for women who who pregnancies were complicated by either recurrent pregnancy loss, which is generally speaking three or more miscarriages. And a miscarriage is generally speaking um, in the United States, it can be less than 20 weeks. I know we typically use 13 weeks and under, um, but most women can't wait to three. Actually, we start doing testing and we start doing, looking into uh, what could be the cause actually after two. Um, I know the recommendation is three, but I know doctors, Start looking as soon as a woman has hit two. Um, growth restriction. So you've gone to see your doc and they're doing an ultrasound and they do a weight on the baby and they do measurements. And if that combined weight is less than the 10th percentile, and especially if it's less than the third percentile, that's when your baby, you'll hear those terms growth restricted. Um and I mean, we can, you know, if, if a listener out there uh, wants to know more about growth restriction, um, that can be a topic of a, a, certainly a topic that we talk about on, a, on another. Preeclampsia is also another medical term of a condition that women, only women can get because you only get it in pregnancy. Um, it has to do with high blood pressure and protein in the urine. And um Unfortunately, the only uh, cure for preeclampsia is to deliver the baby, and you basically can get it from any time after 20 weeks to term, so by 40 weeks. So it's it's I, I don't want to scare anybody with this. The majority of women do not get preeclampsia. Um, there are risk factors for preeclampsia, but once you have it, you, you will know everything about it. Um, 
because you end up diving into that world of women who have had preeclampsia. And placental abruption is, is just a term that the placenta, which is the attachment uh, that connects the baby to you, and is that really is starting to be considered another organ, is the thing that filters um, the nutrients and the oxygen from you to the baby. And the baby releases uh, um, its uh it's things back to the mom. So it's that organ that attaches uterus and um, is the is the filter between mom and baby. So inherited thrombophilia is um, a blood work and it's a bunch of laboratory uh, evaluations for something that you may have gotten from mom and dad. That's what inherited means. You inherit something from mom and dad. And thrombophilia is just fancy medical term for something that makes you clot more. Um, so making you form more blood clots. Now, pregnancy is a state that you form a lot of blood. You are at higher risk to form blood clots. So having an inherited condition where you're more predisposed on top of being pregnant can make you more likely to form a blood clot in pregnancy. So I'm, you know, Bernice, as you know, you, or as you might know, that's pretty scary thing. Absolutely. hundred yeah. percent. So. so this first thing is actually saying in all of these conditions, we actually used to evaluate all women who've had recurrent pregnancy loss, babies who are extra small, women who've had preeclampsia, women whose pregnancy, they ended up being delivered because of a placental abruption. They are saying, don't do it. We used to do it. But now they're saying, don't do it. And the reason for that is that they've actually found that that doesn't lead to any of these things. Okay. That's good. Yeah. Because I, I was under the impression, you know, more testing, the better, like let's, let's do as much as we need to, but if it's not needed or warranted because it doesn't have any relevance to either thing, well, that makes sense then. Right. Now there is one thrombophilia and I think, you know, in a stillbirth evaluation, um, this may be worthwhile is to test for antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. And that is an inherited thrombophilia. But there are other laboratory evaluations of other ones um, I have heard of like MTHFR, which is an acronym for methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase deficiency. So again, a mouthful, um, but right. you know, a, women come to my office and they have this huge workup of all of these things. And in the end, depending on their history, they might not need it. Yeah. No, that's good to know. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, a lot of information in. Right. <laughs> I know. I'm like trying to process it all, to be honest, and all the terminology, but I'm so grateful that you broke it down too. Thanks, Serena, for explaining that just because for someone like me, you know, I need to understand um, and actually get a better picture. So I love that you did that. Um, 
Yeah. So the next one says, don't make irreversible decisions based on the results of cell-free DNA screening tests. So, right. Right. I mean, I do you remember? Um, I'm sure you you've had this test. Uh, oh yeah. Which is done basically as soon as you hit about 10 weeks. It can be done a little sooner, but you need to have some fetal cells circulating in your bloodstream. Um, and that usually is about 10 weeks when you have enough percentage that then they can do run this test. But right. I'm sure you've had this test performed. Absolutely. Yep. We have done the full gamut of DNA testing. Um, and it was, it was around 10 weeks. And it was also the one I only remember specifically too, because we got the gender reveal early because of right. Right. Yeah. And so this test, it it's ama it's an amazing blood test. Um, it's basically taken out um, like some of the more traditional testing, but they're more invasive testing um, where you can definitively be able to tell uh, using the baby's own skin cells. Using the placenta to give you similar information. Um, but this is just a blood test. It's not invasive. It has uh, changed the landscape of genetic testing um, because I would say 98 to 99% of women utilize this test um, to at least get that first look-see as to whether or not the baby has anything going on with their genetic makeup and as well as finding out what the gender is. Um, yeah. A lot of times we get the, I want the gender test, please. <laughs> so It's exactly right. That's how I remembered it at first. Yeah. And then understanding later down the road, like the importance behind it, especially um, being advanced maternal age and, and things like that, you know, testing for different things that you can know early um, or then have a game plan or, or do further testing to see if it is an actual thing. Um, right. And right. so this cell-free DNA screening test can give you some early information about um, whether your baby has uh, Down syndrome, um, right. whether your baby has an extra chromosome at the other common um, genetic um, issues that a baby may have that can still lead to a, a live born, but may then have other consequences. So like stillbirth, or um, life-limiting diagnoses. Um, and that's yeah. like trisomy 13 and trisomy, trisomy 21. And again, fancy medical, meaning that there's an extra chromosome at that location. Um, okay. You know, yeah. long time ago, you know, we all had, uh, we all have uh, 42 chromosomes um, of which we have, uh, 20, am I saying that right? 46, sorry, not 42, 40, 46 chromosomes of which 22, yeah, 22, we have 22 pairs and then we have our sex chromosomes, X, XX or XY. So we have a 46 and they number it from one to 22. So I'm not, I, that's how they did it. And that's how they stuck with it. So you have two chromosomes at every position, one to 22, and then uh, 45 is either X and 46 is either X or Y, you know, 45 is either X or Y and 46 is either X or Y. Yeah. Um, 
And trisomy just means there's three instead of two at that particular location. Um, what this number two is saying is that actually that blood work is a screening test. And this goes into what's a screening test and what's a diagnostic test. Right. Screen, yeah. So a screening test just screens the possibility. It doesn't give you the actual diagnosis. And that is so hard because you get a, a test back that says, okay, your baby doesn't have X, Y, or Z, but then your baby has a, an anomaly, a structural problem. Either the heart's wrong, the brain looks funny. Um, the bowels are outside. There's something not going well with your baby, but wait, you know, my testing was, was normal. Or you could have the other thing where something comes up like your baby has down syndrome or, you know, has that extra chromosome, at least on that testing, but everything on ultrasound looks normal. Yes. So what this is saying is that actually that self-free DNA test is a screening test because there is a percentage where or probability that it could be a false positive. And so the next test would be to do an invasive test, which is depending on where you are in your pregnancy, you could do something called chorionic villa sampling which where they just sample the placenta that is usually done in the time frame of 10 to 13 weeks, or you do um, amniocentesis, which is done yeah. after it, it can be done as early as 15 weeks, um, but usually done 16 weeks and beyond. You can do an amnio at any point in time, generally after 15 weeks. Yeah. Well, and I think that is so important. Like you said, the screening versus the diagnostic, just because like they're saying here, don't make an irreversible decision or something, you know, based on the screening, go for further testing, do something right. more than, yeah, just this right. base. It's almost like a baseline, right? Is that? Gives you that first look-see um, yeah. and, and where again if you if it comes back where your baby might have something that you're like oh my gosh right is it then you need to talk they you heard if your ob or your provider performs this test you will also then speak with a genetic counselor who will break that test down further for you and explain why it's only a screening test. It's not a hundred percent. It doesn't mean necessarily your baby has that. And so that, that, that is, that is why this recommendation, which is don't decide, for example, my baby has this. So now I want to interrupt the pregnancy. Right. No, that's, that's, important to know. Absolutely. Um, it says to like, don't screen for fetal growth restriction with Doppler blood flow studies. That's interesting. Right, right, right. So, um, so this, this, how this is broken down is that you otherwise have a normal pregnancy, nothing's going on. What this is saying, don't go looking for problems. Uh, don't go looking for this problem based on this study. Um, so 
we used to look at like uterine artery Dopplers um, and depending on the way that waveform might look, you know, that flow of the blood going um, through that artery, you may then, your pregnancy may be then at risk for having a baby who is smaller um, than it should be. Um, this is just saying, don't screen for that um, using uh, that blood flow study. And, um, you know, the reason for that is that uh, there's just, you know, it's just not, um, it's just inconsistent. So the research that has been done has not shown that it's been positively associated, that the abnormalities in those blood flows doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have a baby that's growth restricted. So they're just saying, don't screen for that. Okay. No, that's good to know too. Absolutely. I'm, I'm telling you, these are great. I mean, you know, things to know, things that, you know, you didn't think about or didn't know previously or things that you were tested for, you know, and, and now it's not, like you said, even after a couple of years, it becomes the way medical goes and how quick it changes, you know, and research is done. Um, it's interesting. Right. And I mean, you know, with Google, the internet, I mean, we are all looking for information and we, we are looking for reasons as to why this happened to us. You know, why did I end up with preeclampsia that then led to me being delivered early or, you know, why did I lose my baby? Could it be because I had this or, or that? And then, okay, now I'm being told I need, you know, my doctor wants to do this for me. Is that really truly beneficial or is it something that I don't need? And maybe we do something different. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it says like here too, um, don't use progesterones for preterm birth prevention and uncomplicated multifetal gestations. Yeah. So that's just multifetal gestations is just, again, a mouthful for twins. Right. Yeah. I was going to say, isn't it twins or multiples? Like, I, I, okay, good. Yeah. yeah just a mouthful for, for something wow. that's really yeah. easy twins and triplets. We don't really yeah. see quads anymore. I mean, so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, progestins have gone up and down. And actually, you know, I think at some point we should probably go over the progesterone data because now they, uh, progesterone has been um, taken off as being beneficial for preterm birth prevention. Um, I'm sure all of, there is a generation of women who've had the shots. Oh yeah. My husband. Oh God, love him every week on, you know, switching butt cheeks. Poor guy. Right. Oh, I was not good with the shot, getting shots either. So, you know, it took, sometimes it took me about 30 minutes to 45 minutes to work up to it, but yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I, you know, this is actually saying don't even use it for wow. multiples for wow. yeah. twins and, and actually we kind of knew that, but I, I think we, you know, well, it can't hurt, um, you know, if we yeah. give it multiples or, you know, it, the data out there actually was we we really didn't recommend it um, just because it might be more harmful um, to use it in um, in twins. 
um, and, and triplets. So this just, I think this is just saying, please don't do it. It, it has not been shown to reduce preterm birth. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And I, I find it interesting too, that it's saying specifically multiples. Um, what about singular? Um, it, it, the more research has come out that, yeah. uh, has shown that it hasn't been beneficial. So right. that's why the FDA pulled it. Um, that, okay, it can't be used for that indication anymore. Now that is for the, uh, I am injection. Um, yeah. they did not pull the vaginals, uh, preparation repositories. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that is still being used. Um, and really okay. we use that for, I mean, typically in the past for short cervixes. So someone yep. comes in with an unexpected short cervix, we still use uh, vaginal progesterone for that. I know that people have been using it for prior preterm birth, um, even without a short cervix. So going to that instead of having the uh, injections. Okay. Wow. Oh my goodness. Well, this has been great, Serena. We're at, you know, our time for this week's segment. So we'll have to continue on this article. We'll probably need about, you know, two more parts um, <laughs> of this together. But this is just also important, not just around you know, the four different topics that they're mentioning in this article, but then also opening up the deeper discussion to even dive in more to abruptions and, um, you know, preterm progesterones and all of that stuff, you know, things that it just opens the door for so much more. And I can't thank you enough for that. Right. And it, as we were going through each one, I'm like, okay, I need to stop talking because... <laughs> We, we are only on question one or, you know, the first thing I'm like, oh my God, I took up 10 minutes just trying to explain <laughs> what, you know, because it is, it is a mouthful. And then it's like, wait a second, what are they actually asking or what are they actually saying? And um, you do need to bring this to your doctor and say, okay, spell it out for me because all of these medical terms, I need it broken down. I need Absolutely. You to <laughs> tell me what it means. But well, I think yeah, I always say dumb it down for me. And it, and not because I'm dumb. It's just like, honestly, I, I can't use medical lingo. Like, you know, especially when that was floating around during a tragic, traumatic event that was happening with Brooke. And like, they were throwing out medical terms, like all the medical team around me. So it was like, yeah. whenever I was hearing those medical terms, it was a lot. I was like, well, okay, let's, uh, you know, it's, it's just a lot to process. So it is good to take these. I, I love that advice that you gave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, we only got through, uh, let's see, about 20%. Yeah, well, Serena, thank you so much for coming on, for opening this dialogue, you know, for starting these conversations. It's a great starting point, um, especially for someone like me, you know, when I was thinking about conceiving or trying to conceive after our loss, you know, where do we go? What's the pl game plan for next time? And just having a list of things and talking to my doctor about it and my maternal fetal medicine team just means so much. So thank you for being here. Thank you. I mean, I think I really love this uh, article and I, I really, I didn't realize how much I would have to break it down because it, to me, it's like, huh? I like, it's hard. And, yeah. um, 
there's so much in each one. I, I mean, of course, I'm reading it through going, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And then actually now talking it through with you, I realize, wait a second, it's not so easy as that. Right. It's not as straightforward um, as, you, I like, as I would think. Yeah, yeah. But I love this and I uh, can't wait for part two and probably part three. Of yeah. This Oh, well, thank you so much, Serena. And thank you so much, listeners and um, survivors for tuning in. Please follow and subscribe to our podcast so we can help reach as many survivors as we can so they can find our podcast just to hear about different topics and about, you know, living after loss and what that looks like to know that they have a community of survivors behind them. So we are always with you, fertility loss, pregnancy loss, and baby loss survivors. Thank you.